I always look forward to times with uh, my next guest, and, and, and I also look forward to any time that I can hear him reading and speaking in, in public as well. He was born in San Francisco, lives in Berkeley. He served as Poet Laureate of the United States for two years, MacArthur Fellow. He's uh, published uh, many books of, of poetry, Field Guide, Praise, Human Wishes, Sun Underwood, also 20th Century Pleasures, Prose on Poetry. There's a wonderful essay on Joni Mitchell in that. Worked with uh, Chislov Milos in translating many, much of his poetry into English and put together a beautiful anthology called the Addison Street Anthology in which he chose poetry that appears in brass plaques in the sidewalks of Addison Street in Berkeley. Uh -huh. And he's married to the poet Brenda Hillman. His current book, collection, Poems, 1997 to 2005, is called Time and Materials, and it just won the National Book Award for Poetry. Please welcome Robert Haas to West Coast Live. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Nice Thank you. Me. Pleasure to be here. Terrific show. Thank you. Thank you. Get to listen to Al and Mike and Roy, especially Al and Mike doing uh, Green Dolphin Street. <laughs> I, I realize in doing that introduction that you're often probably introduced that way. Is there anything that people leave out of introductions that you'd like to have people know about you? Um, no, not really. Tap <laughs> dancing. I once took a Chinese brush painting class, but I haven't. Uh, I've never been a butcher. I, th I think that's an interesting line of sort of, you know, introductions that, that aren't usually given about yeah. people. There's a famous, uh, pa the opening line of of uh, Nikolai Gogol's story, The Overcoat, is a, a paragraph-long description of a man that's, that begins by saying, it wouldn't be quite right to say that he was tall. On the other hand, he wasn't short. His hair was of a difficult color, maybe sandy, but maybe not. Um, his tonsorial habits were somewhat furtive, so no one knows who his barber is, and so on. He goes on for a whole page without managing not to say a single thing about this person. I always thought that would be a triumph of writing to be able to do that. And not even quite negative space description, too. <laughs> that's right. Nothing. I was, uh, and that's, uh, how much of the overcoat have you memorized? I think that's it. In oh, fact, yeah. that, was, that was a kind of jazz improvisation on the opening <laughs> of the overcoat. But also in translation, too. From yeah, that's right. There's a, one of, the, of these wonderful poems in here. Some of them are very short and bucolic. Often uh, they're dealing with the subject of love and what people are thinking of in the, in the act of making love. But some of them are also very political. One of them called Bush's War. There are also, uh, and, and then the structure of the poem ends once again, of the, of the volume ends back in Inverness, where you, where you have a house there yeah. by Tomales Bay. How did you think about structuring the flow of the poems in this book? Well, it was, it was an interesting set of problems because it was a very busy time for me. And I was writing, I wrote very intensely when I was writing, but during the periods when I wasn't, I wasn't. And so the writing tend to come in bursts of obsession, you know. At, at the beginning, the sort of obsession was, where is my imagination? How do I locate art? in my life, then later memory, erotic memory uh, became a subject. Then later, we, I was at teaching in, at the Free University in Berlin uh, around the time the Iraq War was being 
the war drums were being beaten. And of course, if you're in Berlin, you spend all your time thinking, how did it happen? How did this, it, the thought never quite leaves your mind, though Berlin is an astonishing place, partly because for, I think for Americans who go there, it's frozen in that time, but it wasn't for them. They fought many other kinds of battles and though in the years since. So it was, anyway, it was a very, it was an amazing and difficult place to be in a beautiful city. And when I got back here, thinking about Al's comment about language, the, the dr it was like I had moved inside a bubble that I was unaware of. Suddenly there was this drumbeat. I knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I knew that Saddam Hussein was not responsible for 9-11. I read a, a, a survey sometime after the war started that said that 75% of American elected officials, mayors, city councilmen, governors, 75% of American elected officials believed that Saddam Hussein was in some way responsible for 9-11. In that essay of, so anyway, it was very, it was very alarming. And the, the, as terrible as the war in Iraq is, it's, it, 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 there's in some way, it's not comparable to World War II. 45 to 60 million people, a quarter of the planet, was killed in that war. And, but nevertheless, to see what, I was thinking about, the, I went back and read Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language, and it really propaganda was in its infancy, and he, what he described it as was a government that controls the environment by constantly repeating a steady stream of half-truths and lies. And, you know, it's and then part of his premise was the big lie, and the bigger the lie, the more, you could, more likely it was you were to get away with it. Yeah. Anyway, I came back into a country that was just being fed a steady stream of half-truths, and lies and um, so I in some way tried to think and write about that and, and so then structuring and then of course I was just trying to live my life so so I tried to structure this book in a way that would be kind of like my that would be like my experience of living in the time we're living in thinking about and caring about all the different sorts of things we care about it's a. It was. A, I had. A, you, you, there's a lot of, of about the layering of our of our time and the way things go on with simultaneity. I mean, both in our memory and in, in real life. And I was realizing I was reading this, um, and reading about Horace in here, and also your own sort of bits of erotic memory that that come up. And at the same time, in the background, my kids were watching an Abbott and Costello movie, and that was the soundtrack to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. How you get all of that? Yeah. I remember. And then. Years ago, Al and I, in an airport, talking about poetry. We were very young poets, just going on the road the first time. And the conversation we had was about, there's so much going on all the time. How do you get it, exactly? How do you get that guy over there with one arm who puts his croissant in his mouth while he pours coffee, while Fox News is on over here, and James Brown is on over here and you're tired and you see, anyway, there's too much. There's too much world and you try to find a way to get to it. A conductor once explained to me that was the beauty of opera and for instance, Mozart's quartets, quintets and sextets that you could have six people in their thoughts simultaneously expressing themselves to you through song. Of course, you needed the libretto to read it and super titles, but nonetheless, that was the way one artist tried to respond. 
Yeah, it's, it's also why poets are sick with envy at musicians, <laughs> because you, you can't read with two hands, you know? You're doing it with one hand all the time. Music can be the other hand, which is why that, that reading of, uh, of a little poem about jazz was so wonderful. In the, in the title poem, Time and Materials, you refer to the painter Gerhard Richter, and I mean, there's an artist that you're responding to with, with words. Yeah, that, ha that happened in a, a wonderful way. In the, the, the there was a show of Gerhard Richter's paintings, abstract paintings at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and the, they invited a group of poets and musicians, uh, uh, Bill Frisell among others, to um, go live with those paintings, a set of eight paintings for, or 12 paintings for a couple of weeks and write something, which we did. And the paintings are amazing. Richter, of course, the, the people say he's, he's reviving painting at a time when artists were doing other things and he's done realist painting and photorealist painting, but he's also done these abstractions. And it, one of the things that struck me about it was his method involved layering. That is, it looked like he would put on layers of paint with a squeegee almost, kind of smeared across the... And then he would start working on He that. painted on aluminum or something, I think. Sometimes he did, yeah. With these he didn't, he was painting on canvas. Is, is this a poem you think could be read aloud given the typography that occurs? Yeah. I, a funny thing, I'll, I'll, I'll read it and then I'll tell you something about my experience of reading it aloud. So it's called Time and Materials and it's partly a meditation on these paintings and partly, of course, meditation on one's life. Time and materials, Gerhard Richter, abstract bilden. To make layers, as if they were a steadiness of days. It snowed. I did errands at a desk. A white flurry out the window, thickening. My tongue tasted of the glue on envelopes. On this day, sunlight on red brick, bare trees, nothing stirring in the icy air. On this day, a blur of color moving at the gym where the heat from bodies meets the watery, cold surface of the glass. Made love, made curry. Talked on the phone to friends, the one whose brother died was crying and thinking alternately, like someone falling down and getting up and running and falling and getting up. The object of this poem is not to to not The object of this poem is to report a theft in progress of everything that is not these words and their disposition on the page. The object's poem is to report a theft in of everything that exists in these words and their disposition on the page. The object of this poem is to report theft in Everything exists. This worst position page. To score, to scar, to smear, to streak, to smudge, to blur, to gouge, to scrape. Action painting. A the painter gets to behave like time. The typo would be painting, action painting. To abrade or to render time and stand outside the horizontal rush of it for a moment to have the sensation of standing outside the greenish rush of it, some vertical gesture then, the way that anger or desire can rip a life apart, some wound of color. 
So the <laughs> So the story about this is that I when I was writing the poem, I was trying to imitate the way that Gerhard Richter made a surface and then defaced the surface. So I made this little stanza and then defaced it as a visual thing. And I had not given any thought to reading it out loud. And <laughs> at, on this occasion, when we, we had jazz in the museum and all the poets read their, their poems about Gerhard Richter, I read this poem. And when I finished, there was thunderous applause. And I thought, what is this all about? And it, what, what it was about was, I think people thought I was having a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> and that you survived the poem. And, and that I had recovered, you know? So they, were, so they were clapping in relief that I wasn't dead on stage, you know? <laughs> but it's a funny thing to think about, the idea of ripping words apart. The meaning is then hard to discern. They become these uh, sort of abstract symbols. Yeah. I sort of had in mind there is a there is a Latin poet contemporary with Catullus named Calvus, who only survives in a handful of fragments, and the fragments are all like, "We'll never forget my words." <laughs> That's all there is. These <laughs> our love will immortal. We'll never forget odds and ends fragments of Calvus. Poor Calvus. Uh. How is it that that scholars of poetry can determine the identity of a poet based on just a fragment such as that? Oh, I actually have a poem that is partly about that. Another thing that happened during this period of my life is that my dear friend Chesov Miłosz died at the age of 93, and he was my neighbor in the Berkeley Hills. He's one of the great poets of the 20th century, living in exile up the road from me. Long before I met him, I knew that he was by reputation this great poet and that his poems could not be published in his native Poland and that they were published in tiny editions by a little emigre press in France, that he was supposedly writing poems about the sun going down over San Francisco Bay, that nobody, that this poet with his unpronounceable name was writing in, in uh, this obscure language. And then in, anyway, I, I very much wanted to meet him and, and I did and then I ended up spending 25 years helping to get his poems into English. We would meet on Monday mornings, rain or shine, for two hours. Uh, at the beginning I was very busy not learning Japanese so I didn't want to start not <laughs> learning Polish but and I didn't understand that I would be doing this for such a long time but we did work together and he would sometimes have laid out poems written in the 1930s about a brooding sense of apocalypse and violence to come, and sometimes it would be poems from the 1940s about picking up a, the fragment of a poem of, about a, sh a shepherd in a blown-up library in Warsaw, sometimes the kind of political existential poems of the 1950s in France. So it was like the getting to live through the 20th century a second time. It was a completely amazing experience. Anyway, when he, in his last years, he had moved back to Poland, and I one day dropped by his house in Berkeley and uh, found that a deer had given birth right under his study window. And I had been teaching a class in which I had just come across a description of a newborn deer written by a 
fifth century BC poet, he was probably a singer, songwriter, I don't think there was writing yet on the Greek islands off the Turkish coast, but, the, but there was a fragment that was a description of a deer, and when I looked, it turned out that this fragment had been found by the, by, uh, uh, on a piece of papyrus that wrapped a mummy in Cairo. And the reason that they knew that it was a fragment from Anacreon, because one prepositional phrase in the poem had been used as an example by an Alexandrian grammarian in a treatise on Greek grammar as an example of some unusual case ending. So they had, oh, they knew what this was by. So you kind of go from the, the grammarian doing the case ending to the guys unwrapping the mummy fragment to Anacreon writing a poem about ungulate behavior 2,500 years ago, which he was probably using to describe the girl in his bed. <laughs> so let's hear the poem. So this is the poem. Milos grew up in Lithuania, and it was uh, weather is kind of like Maine, and it made him intensely bitter that the Bay Area was foggy in the summertime. It was part of his, <laughs> his exile. He has one poem in which he says, it's foggy, so it must be July, which is... <laughs> so this is for Chesov Miłos in Krakow. The fog has hovered off the coast for weeks and given us a march of brilliant days you wouldn't recognize who have grumbled so eloquently about gray days on Grizzly Peak. Unless they put you in mind of puppet pageants, your poems remember from Lithuanian market towns just after the First World War. Here's more theater. A mule-tailed doe gave birth to a pair of fawns a couple of weeks ago just outside your study in the bed of Axalis by the redwood trees. Having dropped by that evening, I saw, though at first I couldn't tell what I was seeing, a fawn, wet and shivering, curled almost in a ball under the thicket of hazel and toyon. I've read somewhere that does hide the young as best they can and then go off to browse and recruit themselves. They can't graze the juices in the leaves if they stay to protect the newborns. It's the glitch in engineering through which chance and terror enter on the world. I looked closer at the fawn. It was utterly still and trembling, eyes closed, possibly asleep. I leaned to smell it. There was hardly a scent. She had licked all traces of the rank birth smell away. Do you remember this fragment from Anacreon, the context, of course, was probably erotic, dot, 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 her gently, comma, like an unweaned fawn left alone in a forest by its antlered mother, frail, trembling with fright. It's a verse, you will like this detail, found in the papyrus that wrapped the female mummy a museum in Cairo was examining in 1956. I remember the time that a woman in Portland asked if you were a reader of Flannery O'Connor. You winced regretfully, shook your head, and said, you know, I don't agree with the novel. <laughs> I think you haven't agreed in this same sense with life, never accepted the cruelty in the frame of things, brooded on your century, and God the monster, 
and the smell of summer grasses in the world that can hardly be named or remembered past the moment of our wading through them, and the words, world's poor salvation in the word. Well, dear friend, you resisted. You were not mute. Mark tells me he has seen the fawns grazing with their mother in the dusk, gorging on your roses. So it seems they made it through the night, and neither dog nor car has got to them just yet. Robert Haas. What, what does the phrase, and recruit themselves? You know, somebody else asked me about that. I love that word because I went and looked at a, uh, wild, at a, a book on deer behavior. And the, and the word that was used for uh, getting their energy back was recruit. And so I looked it up in the OED, and there are lots of 18th, it's in Tom Jones, and a lot of 18th century novels, it's used in that earlier meaning. I guess in the way an army recruits itself by going out and grazing for new soldiers to kill um, and to... And to enlist and to encourage to take risks on people's behalf. Um, so that's, that was the original meaning of the word, was to regain your strength. Maybe. And I thought, should I use that old-fashioned word? And I, and I thought, well, the wildlife biologist used it, so it's too delicious not to put it back in English. There are uh, so many poems in here, and some of them have got internal jokes that you, you make. Um, so there must be times when you're sitting at your typewriter or whatever it is you write on that where you, you guffaw aloud at something that you've written. For instance, in the poem about the cucumber, you say here, if you think I'm going to make a sexual joke in this poem, you are mistaken. Yes. <laughs> yes. I wish I did. I, I probably smile to myself. I read once in a biography of Pushkin, though, that uh, his landlord was driven crazy by the, when he would... He would go out and gamble until two and drink until two in the morning, then he'd come home and write. And the landlord said he was often awakened at three or four in the morning, hearing Pushkin saying to himself, boy, Alexei, boy, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought, well, I've never yeah. met, of course, that's maybe why I'm not Pushkin. I've never really um, wanted to cheer myself in that way. <laughs> could, could you read your note here about uh, working with Chislov, uh, you have a, a couple of poems that are nice, but it's, it's yeah. just sort of a bit of the conversation and exchange. Yeah, this, uh, was, that this was, it's quite wonderful. We were, uh, on, around his 90th birthday, he sent me a little group of short, very short four-line poems. He was then, had returned to Krakow, and he was also getting quite <laughs> deaf and blind, and uh, I, and some of them had, were, the poems were entitled O, O exclamation point on some and O H exclamation point on others. So I emailed him and said, which do you mean, O or O H? And his secretary, Agnieszka, emailed me back and said, Chesov says you better do this on the phone. So I called him and said, Chesov, shouting for him, do you mean O H or O? exclamation point. And he said, how do you hear the difference? And I said, well, for me, O-H-O is like a full breath of wonder. Wow. 
And oh, exclamation point, it's like wonder plus huh. You know, kind of caught breath. It's like oh or oh, like that. And there was a long pause on the other end, and then he said, oh, for sure. <laughs> so I can read the first of these poems. It's very short. The kind of poem you can, you can write when you're 90 or 91 years old. Oh, happiness to see an iris, the color of indigo as Ella's dress was once, and the delicate scent was like that of her skin. Oh, what a mumbling to describe an iris that was blooming when Ella did not exist, nor all our kingdoms, nor all our domains. Oh. Now, when you say that that's a poem that you could write when you're 90 or 91, what does that mean when you... Is there, is there a certain... I, I don't know if I could get away with saying, oh, to see an iris, you know. You know there's, that, there's something point blank about his poetry. We're, we're all, we've all been um, trained to think we need to say something deeply original and surprising and say it in a completely fr frontal way. And he, as he got older, it was very interesting to work with him because American poetry was getting more experimental in really interesting ways. There was a Gertrude Stein revival. People were writing poems that were full of grammatical play that didn't make it much literal sense, you know. Poem would be, my students were writing poems with, that would, like a whole poem would be, a napkin is not necessarily. <laughs> that would be, they were, in, they were interested in discommoding language in one way or another. And Chesov had seen so much loss in his life that he just wanted to say things more and more plainly just want to make it as simple as possibly thought. People suffered so much uh, that poetry ought to be a comfort to them. And it ought to say the truth about things, but it ought to be a comfort to people. And it ought to be as simple as possible. Your, uh, your poetry uh, says a lot about suffering and about love and about uh, the delights of, of life and of the senses. Written over uh, seven years, 1997 to 2005, it's called *Time and Materials*. The collection won the National Book Award by Robert Haas, who was never a butcher. <laughs> thank yes. you very much for being. Yes, yes. Thank you very much for being on my Thanks. Thank you, Robert Haas. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live, right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.